Good morning. Today's scripture is James 1, 2 through 3. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord God, for this beautiful morning. We thank you, Father God, that, that we can come and gather in your name. And I pray, Father God, just as we sang, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come in, open our hearts and our minds that we may be transformed by your living word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You guys can take a seat. Well, good morning. My name is Tim. I'm the pastor here. If you're new, we just want to welcome you here. If this is your first time, just a special welcome to you. If I didn't meet you on the way in, I'd love to meet you on the way out. And so be sure to stop by and say hello. Before we get into the sermon this morning, I just want to celebrate something with you. Uh, over the weekend, we hosted a marriage conference, and we did it in homes, and so it was a little bit different, but it was so helpful and beneficial for our marriages. My wife and I personally got to participate, and it was really helpful for us, and we had singles, marrieds, all looking at what does it look like to have a vibrant gospel-saturated marriage, because that doesn't just happen, right? If you are married, amen, right? You know that, right? Uh, and so we want to dig into that deeper, and actually we're going to do that next Sunday as we get back into First Peter. We're going to be preaching on marriage, and I'm really excited to share with you two books as well after that service to, uh, that you can purchase in the lobby uh, and just go deeper in marriage. And so whether you're single or married, you need to know that if we are going to have a vibrant, gospel-saturated church, and if we're going to invest in a legacy of that, we have to have vibrant, gospel-saturated marriages. And so excited for you guys that got to participate in that this weekend, excited for next Sunday. But today, uh, we are taking a break from First Peter because we have my friend Tom Schrader here to preach to us. And I got to meet Tom with a group of pastors that I meet with pretty consistently. Some of them are church planners, some of them are established churches, and I meet with these guys consistently just for support, to learn from one another. And something we just started doing several months back was grabbing a guy in our city, in the valley that we can learn from. And Tom Schrader was one of those guys that we first met with and just talked about life, church, ministry, and all those things. And immediately, Tom and I clicked and I just wanted to continue that conversation, and he was gracious enough to do so over breakfast and coffee and those things after that point. But one of the turning points in my relationship with Tom was when we got breakfast together and he ordered a cheeseburger. And at that moment, really, my respect for him grew just to another level, and, um, and our relationship deepened. And uh, I'm excited for you to hear from Tom. He's got a wealth of knowledge and ministry. He founded East Valley Bible Church, which is now Redemption Church. Uh, I think it switched to about four or five years ago, and they're still growing. And Tom is uh, a faithful guy who loves Jesus, loves his wife, Sandy, who's here with us this morning. And I'm excited for you to hear from him. And so would you welcome Tom with me now? Well, good morning. So we've established one thing. I'm a health nut. Yeah, that's not good. That's, I, it is really a privilege to be with you. I get a chance now. I taught for almost like 26 years in a uh, church every Sunday morning. And so I was pretty limited 
uh, to that environment. And now Sandy and I have a chance, I would say once or twice a month, to get out and to visit other churches. And it's so exciting to see what God is doing and be reminded that he doesn't just work at a redemption church or a Phoenix Bible church, but that God is doing stuff all over this city. And to come in this morning and just watch this come to life, watch the people come, the people that are here to set up, uh, to watch you arrive, uh, to see boxes of cookies out there. Uh, it's, it's inspirational. And then to hear that worship, and then to know that you love Jesus. And, and now, how do we live that out? So coming into an environment like this, the most difficult thing for me is, is what to talk about. And in an ideal setting, and today was ideal, is Tim doesn't give me any parameters. Now, it's probably scary on his part in an act of faith, but he just said, come and share. And so you look for a topic that, that you hope will connect with some people, most people, but I got one today that connects with everybody. We're going to talk today about stress. So let me give you the definition of stress. I think it's our first slide, is that stress is essentially uh, the wear and tear of living. That every person has it. Tim kind of made reference to it. Every relationship, every marriage has it. Every organization has it. Every church has it. I, I'm sure you've participated in it in, in, in every area of your life. Just, I, I don't know that you need it, but as though you need to be convinced of this, let me give you a, a little bit of information. The director of Britain's National Association of Mental Health says the whole Western world is under stress. Listen to this. Our mode of living produces continuous stress from the moment we're born. It hits everyone. There's no escaping it. Stress affects the apparently happy, healthy people just as much as naturally born warriors. His conclusion, I'm left to no, in no doubt that stress is the fastest growing disease in the Western world. The American Medical Association says over half of visits to a doctor involves stress. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal a while ago talking about the stress that's produced in the lives of 18-month-olds that are pushed into childcare. It stresses around us, it, 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 there's no escaping it. Now, there's two ways that I want to approach this. I'm going to give you three things that you can do to eliminate stress. Uh, I was in a doctor's office this week, and every time I'm there, there's an MD magazine, and there's always an article on stress. So here's three things you can do to eliminate stress. They need no expansion. Number one is eat. <laughs> Uh, I, I want to say eat correctly, but I just go for eat better. One is watch what you eat. It, it, it doesn't seem to matter where you go with health, mental, physical health, is watch what you eat. And this is really hard for me, and I confess it. I mean, obviously, 
Obviously, if I'm ordering a cheeseburger at 8.30 in the morning, there's an issue there, and I'm working on that. Here's the second thing you can do. Get enough sleep. You're not made. You just go and go and go. You have to find a way to shut it down. And the third thing is exercise. Now, every doctor, every homeopath, anybody is going to give you those three things. That's not what I want to talk about today. I want to give you five things you can know that will eliminate stress in your life. So five things, next slide, five things that you can know that will eliminate stress in your life. Moving from things to do to things to know. Now, this is based, all of this, for you on what I'm sure is a faulty premise. It's based on the fact that you're a Christian. These things, these five things you can know are based on the fact that you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you've come to him in repentance and faith. And at that moment, God changes not just your destination from hell to heaven, but he changes your designation. You're now a saint. You're his kid. He loves you. And as you begin to live life, because that's what God wants you to do, if all he wanted to do, think about it, if all he wanted to do was get you to heaven, bam, at the moment you became a believer, he'd take you there. But he left you here for a reason. And the wear and tear of life, the coming down the freeway, the making a turn, a road that's closed, a line. I go, I, I, every Thursday morning, I'm at Circle K at 540 to get my coffee on the, on the way to teach a morning Bible study. The other day, at 540 in the morning, I'm the 13th person in line. I was so wound up for no reason. I don't know. I've got nowhere to go. It's 540. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a mile away from home. I'm 10 minutes into my day, and I can feel this beginning. It, it goes from there, kind of an insignificant thing, to the call that says there's been an accident, to the boss that says we have to downsize, to the spouse, I was with a guy the other day. His wife hangs out. There's four ladies that have been hanging out together for years. Uh, this week, three of the four presented divorce papers to their husbands. It's a wear and tear of life. Five things. Now, here was the verse that, that started all of this. It's the verse we read. Consider it all joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials which is an odd thing. Just look at that. Let your eyes kind of feast on that for a second. Consider means to meditate, not, not just pass it by, but think about. Consider it all joy, my brother, when you encounter various. In the Greek, it's the idea of multicolored. These trials come in all shapes and sizes. There is the word when. It's an inevitability of life. Count it joy when you have trials. That's counterintuitive. That doesn't make sense. Praise Jesus, there's 13 people in front of me at Circle K. That doesn't make sense. 
There's a spot on my lung. God, thank you for these trials. Why? How can I do that? Look at the last part of that verse. Knowing, knowing you know something. What do you know? You know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So let me give you a definition for faith. I came across this a couple of months ago. Listen to a guy teach. He was using this definition, and I love it. Faith is seeing our circumstance from God's perspective. I know that the testing of my faith produces endurance. I know this. I know, here you go, that testing is spiritual aerobics. My wife, Sandy, is with me today, and uh, she and I are kind of on obvious, opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to, to diet and exercise, and, and I want to be more like her, not her like me, but, but she works out every day. Every morning at 4.45, the, the alarm rings, and she goes in and puts on her swimsuit and then puts on her sweats and a coat because she swims outside. It's cold, and she's always cold, to get herself to the pool to swim two or three miles. She'll come back, and then usually four or five days, she'll go to a boot camp in the afternoon, and she'll push herself. Certain days she'll run. She'll push herself and push herself and push herself. And we know that it's aerobic activity. You take those muscles, you take that, that whole cardio system, and you push it and push it and push it, and it makes you stronger. Here's what James is saying. Testing, trials, hardship, suffering, all those things, they make your faith stronger. So rather than push them away, welcome them, one of the paraphrases says, Welcome them as friendly intruders. So here you go. Five things you can know. Five things you can know to reduce stress in your life. Number one, God is in control. Colossians 1, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things have been created by him, through him, for him. It feels, a lot of times, like things are out of control. When uh, Shane and I kept in separate cars, and when she got here and we were outside, and she said, what does the demographic look like? And I said, they kind of look primarily like I don't know, 22 to 32-year-olds. Oh, so I'm talking about your parents who get up every day and they watch Fox News and then they listen to Rush, they listen to Hannity, they talk to each other, they buy gold and silver, and by the end of the day, you're convinced the world's out of control. It feels that way, doesn't it? Doesn't it feel that way? It feels like the world's out of control. It feels like the country's out of control. I think it says that somewhere in 2 Thessalonians. 
Uh, it feels like the country's out of control. It feels like the state's out of control. It feels like traffic's out of control. It feels like work's out of control. It feels like you're out of control. But here's the deal. You're not. God's in control. Doesn't always feel like it. Here's my flinch. I'm kind of a melancholy guy by nature. I mean, I'm kind of a glasses half empty guy by nature. And I have to really fight this. I, and, and I have to look at my life and say, listen, there are things beyond my control, but I need to focus on the things I can control. And those things I can't control, I know this sounds like a bumper sticker, but God's got them under control. <coughs> when I was a young man, <clears throat> there was a, a gospel singer by the name of Mahalia Jackson who, who used to be on Ed Sullivan on Sunday night, and she would sing this song. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got you and me, brother, you and me, sister. We, we live on a planet, I don't know how they figure this stuff out, that weighs... This will be interesting. I want to see you sign this. Six septillion. <laughs> oh, don't jerk. Six septillion, 588 sextillion tons. Yeah. Ah. She made it all up. And it's spinning on its axis at 1,000 miles a uh, hour in an orbit in a 1,000 miles a minute, we're hanging in space. We hang there when you see those pictures, absolutely so fragile, and yet God's got it all under control. Seven plus billion people, and he knows every one of us. He has, you know the scripture, the hairs on our head numbered. Sees the sparrow fall. Psalm 139, the psalmist writes, God, investigate my life. Get all the facts firsthand. I'm an open book to you. Even from a distance, you know what I'm thinking. You know when I leave, when I get up, I'm never out of your sight. If I climb to the sky, you're there. You know me inside out. You know every bone of my body. You know me exactly. You know how I was made, bit by bit, how I was sculptured from nothing to something. Investigate me, O oh God. Find out everything about me. Cross-examine me. Test me. Get a clear picture of me. See for yourself what I've done. Anything wrong, then guide me to the road of eternal life. God is in control. What I know now, right, what I know trumps what I feel. What I know is God's in control. It doesn't always feel that way. Here's the second thing to know to deal with stress. God forgives sin. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sin. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. Such were, look at the past tense, such were some of you. He's writing to this this church in this community that's filled with sin and degradation and just, it's a mess. And, and Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he says, such were some of you, but you were sanctified. You were justified. I think it's the next slide. Oh, there you go. You got it. That's what you were. You're not that anymore. 
I come to Christ in repentance and faith, and I'm a new creature. All those old things are gone. My sin is forgiven. This is a really hard principle for some people, and, and especially more in a generation that you're in, it seems to come to grips with, is that God loves you, and he loves you unconditionally. Our love is always conditional. I'll love you if. I'll love you when. Uh, Sandy and I were uh, eating a few months ago, and I said to her, um, I love you. And she said, why? I don't know. I don't, it's not, a, wasn't trying to get it. I don't know. I need to go to Walgreens and get a card. He'll tell me. I don't know. He'll have an answer for that. No, she said, why do you love me? And, and so I, I, I started. I, and, and I said, you're really, really, really smart. Would you love me if I was stupid? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're really, really, really pretty. Would you love me if I wasn't pretty? You're really, really, really... And she's right at the guts of this thing. Our love is always conditional. I love that ASU football team when they win. I love the Cardinals when they win. Our love is always conditional, but God comes along and he says to you, I love you. I can't see with lights and stuff, but I see a few notebooks. If you're somebody who writes it down, okay, you write this one down. God loves you in spite of you, not because of you. God doesn't love you because you're lovable. Okay? He loved you, Romans 5, 6, 8, 10, while we were sinners, while we were helpless, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. Your sin is forgiven. He's not holding that over you. You're in right relationship with him. You're freed from the eternal consequence of sin and the slavery of sin, and you are free to be the person God created you to be. I was in a Bible study one morning, and one of the guys closed with a prayer. And when he, I, I, I didn't realize, read it, I texted him that day, and I said, do you have a copy of that? And, and, he, and he sent this to me. This is amazing. He said, here's the prayer I shared this morning. Father, I find myself remembering what you have forgotten and condemning myself for what you've forgiven. Teach me never to forgive, forget your forgiveness because I will only be at peace with myself when I'm at peace with you. There might be stress in your life wondering about that relationship with God and I've done it. I did it again. It was Saturday night last night. I did it again last night. I didn't think I would. I did. And here I am this morning, barely got here, racked with guilt. Will God forgive me? Yes. That's not an excuse, by the way, to go and sin more. That's just a beautiful picture of how much God loves you and your sins forgiven. And that is unnecessary stress and worry about that. Number three, God is our only hope and life is temporary. 
2 Corinthians 4.16, Therefore, don't lose heart. Though the outer man is decaying, the inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. For we look not at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are temporal. The things that are unseen are eternal. The outer man is decaying. I, I made a list. In, in the last, basically, three years, I was diagnosed with lupus, which is a disease that strikes 90% of the people who get lupus or diagnosed are women 18 to 35. So I, the minute I heard that, I couldn't wait to get to my first support group meeting. So, <laughs> I know, it'll be interesting. So I was diagnosed with lupus, and I had about six kidney stones. I had quadruple heart bypass. Uh, I've gone through another prescription for my eyeglasses. I've got two hearing aids, and five weeks ago I was diagnosed with prostate cancer. The outer man's decaying. Whoever built, I love our house, and, and we have this incredible bathroom. I love it. Just set up right. Except when you get out of the shower, you step in front of a full-length mirror. <laughs> this is not a good thing. See, I need to come back to this. Our only hope is Jesus. It's not the Republicans. It's not the Democrats. It's not getting a better education. It's not getting a better job. In fact, just the opposite. Those things can distract me. They can pull me away. We sense that we want hope. Hope sells. President Obama ran on that, hope and change. I mean, essentially the campaign slogans now are hope, make America great again or whatever. The idea is that there's a hope, that there's something out here. Our fundamental problem is not economic or political, or relational, or educational, our fundamental problem is sin. And the only solution to that is Jesus. And we're in a world where things are eroding. Paul calls it momentary light affliction. It sharpens us. It prepares us. It causes us to refocus I look not at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. I, I think I said over 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's Paul writing, and he said, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring us, bring with him those who've fallen asleep. He's talking about the end of this whole thing. For this I say to you by the word of the Lord, that we were alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those that have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so that we shall always be with the Lord. He said there's people who are going to die, they're buried 
Jesus is coming again. They're coming alive. People that are alive, they'll be united. They'll go away with him. And we, when we read this and study this, we always stop right there. and We get distracted on rapture, blah, 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 blah. I care about verse 18. And verse 18 is this. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. This is how this is going to end. I was with a, a man on uh, Monday. I went to see him. He's in hospice. He's 91 or 92 years old. And uh, the nurse said, Colonel, Colonel, you have a visitor. And he opened his eyes. I said, hi, and he kind of smiled. He tried to say something. I didn't know what it was. And I went home and I told Sandy, he, he won't, I've seen this before. He's not going to be around long. He's at the end of life. They've increased the morphine. They're dealing with the pain. And I held his hand. This guy, this guy was a tough guy. I don't know how tough you are. He was in World War II Korea and Vietnam. This is a tough old guy. And I held his hand and I rubbed his hand. And I said goodbye to him. And I got a call yesterday. He died. That's not really sad, is it? It's sad for us. It's not sad for him. He's in heaven. See, there's our hope. In this world, talking about stress, talking about all the things that come in in our life, our hope is in Jesus. And he won't fail you. He'll never leave you or forsake you. He's going to let you go into, or, and I don't want to argue theology here, because we could lose the point, but I want to make it, he's going to allow you to go into or put you into the fire. And, and as, as the boys, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, as these guys found out, it is God, and they told Nebuchadnezzar, you, you can put us in their fire. Our God is able to save us, but even if he doesn't, he's in control. This is about his sovereignty. This is about his authority. Number four, God causes all things to work together for good. We have to be careful here because there's kind of a, a popular phrase that, that says that I think everything happens for a reason. Oprah says that. I'm going to be one of those guys. I love Oprah. I love to listen to her. She's a little wacky on some stuff. It's like Ellen. I love to listen to Ellen. Funny as can be. And both Ellen and Oprah, and I use them as kind of pop icon figures, both of them will say, I think happened for a reason. Well, we'll make, let's talk about that seriously. If everything happens for a reason, then somebody has to be in control. Somebody has to be maneuvering things. Somebody has to have authority. Look, look at this verse. And we know. There's the word again. We know this. We know that God causes all things. Now, you can't put the period there to work together for good. God doesn't cause sin. What it says is God orchestrates in the life of, do you see the qualifier there? The believer? If you're a follower of Christ, God, who's in absolute control, will use these things and orchestrate them for your good and his glory. 
I have a wonderful friend, my mentor, outside of family, by far the most important, influential person in my life. His name is Larry Wright. And Larry was very, very sick. His hands were all deformed with arthritis. He had a cancer growing in his neck. He could just watch it grow. And they came in and cut it out. He had, heart, he had, uh, he had so many problems. And a, and a lady came up to him one day. We were talking. And he had just announced, I don't know, whatever the new ailment was. It sounded like mine. And she said, Larry, haven't you suffered enough? And Larry's answer was classic. He said, apparently not. <laughs> because God used it. Larry was, for me, the best teacher I've ever been around. Not just what he said, but what he did. And what gave him the element of, of truth and realism and connection was his suffering. He, he understood hurt and pain. God works all things together for good. Now, I don't know. You can go ahead and fill in in your own life story here what all things are in, in your narrative. I don't, I don't know what all things are for you. Things that you wouldn't ask for, things that you wouldn't uh, kind of dream about happening. God takes those and uses them for your good, for his glory. You in your suffering, pain, hardship, you become a display case for the work of God. People look at you at school or at the gym or at work. They look at you and they say, I don't know how she does it. I don't know how he does it. And God uses you. Isn't that what you pray? If you're, if you're kind of even sort of a follower of Christ in terms of really following after him, there is some time in there where you pray, God, use me. God used me in a significant way. Here's what he hears. God, give me trials and let me suffer. Because now people see that. And you have the chance to say to them, it's not me, it's not my discipline, it's not my fortitude, it's not my tenacity, it's Christ in me. One of the old great saints once uh, offered this insight, preach the gospel and if you must, use words. And that gets requoted all over. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> the gospel is words. At some point, you have to let people see your transformed life and they say, what is it? And you go, it's ju 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 Jesus. It's Jesus in me. And what gives you that platform are these things. Here you go, another write-down thing. What you know trumps what you feel. So you may not feel forgiven. You may not feel loved. You may not feel those things. But God loves you, and you know it because he told you. Here's the fifth thing. It's the last thing. It, it seems almost, I don't know, the least important, and it may be the most important, and that is God doesn't change. James 1.17, every good thing is given, every perfect gift from above 
from the Father of lights, with whom there's no shifting shadow. Malachi 3.6, I am the Lord your God. I do not change. That God, what he says, who he is, how he interacts with his people. God's not morphing. We're becoming. You and I are growing. We're developing. We're different than we were last week and different than we will be next week. But God doesn't change. All of this is true in a world where everything is changing, in a world where the latest technology change, styles change, hairstyles change, clothes change, cars change, houses change, preference change. God doesn't change. So you can live this confidently. Stress is essentially the wear and tear of living. It's walking through the day and just little pieces pulling at you. And there's some things you can do, and I don't want to minimize them. You should do them. You should eat better, and you should exercise, and you should sleep. But there's five things you can know. It doesn't mean the stress won't come. It doesn't mean the hardship doesn't come. But there's five things that you know that in the midst of these trials and difficulties, you know that God's in control. You know he forgives sin. You know he's our hope. You know that all things work together for good. And you know that he's immutable. He doesn't change. Here's my last sentence for you. And it's... uh, I think, for me, says it all in the midst of the stress. Our hope is rooted in the character of God, the sovereignty of God, the faithfulness of God, and the promises of God. I'm teaching next week at uh, Redemption Gilbert, and they've assigned me a topic. I'm the old guy now, so I only get two topics. Legacy or suffering so next week is suffering and the solution is is actually very similar to these things and and if you look at that and i and i love the visual you just let your eyes fall on that our hope is rooted and you just go the last word of each of those lines god 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 Anything other than him, you know, and I'm sure that terminology has been drilled into you, anything other than him is an idol, a false god. And false gods never fail to fail. Anything that you're trusting in your hope and in your future other than Jesus will disappoint you. So I've got four minutes and 51 seconds left. Um, I want to give you four things here that are kind of, for me, the, the procedure that I try to go through when something comes into my life. So you get the biopsy that says it's cancer. Uh, you get the scholarship that says it's denied. Uh, you get something that makes you a little bit afraid or a little bit stressed. Four things. Number one, acknowledge that that's the issue. Don't pretend it doesn't exist. No, no, don't, don't pretend it's no really big thing. It's a big thing. Number two, this is huge. Think theologically. Don't think physically. Think theologically. 
It's not just, yeah, I know God's in control. No, I know God's in control. It's not just, I know he forgives me. He forgives me. I know he'll use it for good. It doesn't mean that it may not hurt and may not be ugly, and it doesn't mean that it wouldn't on its own be something that you would want, but in the context of God's control, you welcome it. Number three, remember what God's done. God uses that word a lot. It's the communion table. Do this in remembrance. Paul writes to the church at Corinth and to the Jews that are there, and he says, remember your forefathers? Remember that Red Sea? Remember that manna? Remember those things? Well, you have your version of that. Remember how God pulled you right out of that mess you were in, that life that was broken, that hurt and that pain, that disappointment, that utter sense of life makes no sense? God did it and continues to do it and will do it. Remember it. And there's the last thing. It's trust him. Psalm 46, verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. It doesn't mean, maybe I want to do my disclaimer here. It doesn't mean that everything in your life is going to go really smooth and easy. If I were to graph this thing circumstantially, circumstantially, your life's going to go like this. And listen, if everything is going really well for you now, or if everything is in the toilet right now, I got the same comment to both of you. This too will change. Okay? Your life's going to go like this circumstantially. You can't take this out of it. And coming to Christ does not take that out of it. But in the midst of that, there's a stillness, there's a calmness, there's a stability that you can have in the middle of it. Not because you're strong, but because he is. That's what Jesus did for you. Let me pray and then... The guys will come and lead us in our time of communion. Father, thank you for this. It's a, thank you for the absolute realism of this. Just acknowledging that life is tough and you know it and, and you don't leave us on our own to ourselves. You help us uh, see things as they really are, meaning see them from your perspective. God, give us your eyes that we look at our life. Give us your strength and your mercy, your grace. Jesus, we thank you for him, and we pray in his name. Amen.